I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the China Power Project and senior fellow for Asian security at the Center for Strategic International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's activities in the Pacific Islands, particularly Melanesia, which includes Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, and Timor-Leste. China has sought closer relations with countries in the region through efforts such as security cooperation and its Belt and Road Initiative. What are China's goals there? And how have regional countries been able to balance their needs and national interests with China's ambitious goals? Here to discuss this and more is Peter Connolly, an adjunct fellow with the Asia program at CSIS, and he is based in Canberra. Peter has completed his doctorate with the Department of Pacific Affairs in the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University, where he focused on China's engagement in the Pacific, particularly in Melanesia. He is an expert in strategy, security, and international relations with 33 years of experience in the Australian Defense Force. Thanks for joining us today, Pete. Thanks so much, Bonnie. It's great to be here. Looking forward to having a chat. <laughs> Thank you. So before we go to our topic, I did want to ask you, how did you get started in researching China's strategy and China's activities in Melanesia? I know you're one of the few researchers who've done extensive study and spent years in the region. So I just want to get a bit of understanding what prompted your research interest. That's a great question. It actually started quite some time ago, but I guess just to give some background to the research, I've focused on Chinese interests in the independent states of the sub-region Melanesia, which is Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, and Fiji, as well as a small state that's close to them but not part of Melanesia called Timor-Leste. And that's led to research in China and in those five case study countries as well from 2014 through to 2022. But where my interest in that started is obviously those countries are incredibly important to Australia. But taking a step back, I was a, an infantry company commander in 2000 and a lot of things happened in that what Australia refers to as the near region in 2000 uh, and it tended to involve parts of the army and the first of those was me and my company were deployed at short notice on a ship to the Solomon Islands because of some internal disagreements that were taking place there and we were deployed on a mission to evacuate foreign nationals of various different countries. And while I was sitting on the ship there waiting for the order to go in, which in the end never came, I was given lists of of the people I could expect to evacuate. And there was all the normal people in the first list from the US and Australia and Europe and various other places. But the next day I got a much longer list that was all Chinese names. And I found that fascinating at the time. I didn't understand enough about how so many Chinese people had come to live in Honiara, which is something that I've got more of an understanding of now. But I was also fascinated by the fact that the People's Republic of China had evidently asked Australia to evacuate its people. So I guess that's kind of the original data point. And Pete, in this first encounter you had on the ship 
outside of Solomon Islands. What year was this? 2000. Oh, wow. It's been quite quite some time already. Yeah. <laughs> so give it, since you started with some attention in 2000s and again, a couple of years later, much more devoted, devoted focus on the region, how have you seen China's engagements with Melanesia change or evolve over this period? Do you have a sense that China's objectives for the region has expanded and China attaches significant importance to the countries that have been a focus of your research, the five countries that you mentioned? Yes, Bonnie, I, I do. Around the year 2017, China started to invest greater elements of statecraft in those these five countries. And when I talk about statecraft, I'm talking about political, economic, and security statecraft in their broadest sense as sources of China's national power that it uses to try to influence the actions of others in other countries. And what I came to see from 2017 through to 2022 was a major change in China's statecraft capabilities as well as its behavior. And when I talk about behavior of statecraft, I'm particularly referring to the integration of those different means to to achieve an effect, a strategic effect on the ground, but also the adaptation of that statecraft to the local environment at times to achieve the best possible outcome from a Chinese perspective. And it does lead me to the conclusion that while there was many arguments, particularly in academia prior to 2017, that the Pacific Islands were of no strategic interest to China, the changes that I've seen in Chinese statecraft as a result of China's grand strategy between 2017 and 2022 indicate that actually Melanesia and the Pacific Islands more broadly are of significant strategic interest to China. And they may have been for some time before these changes took place, or maybe that's that prioritization changed about that time. It's it's difficult to say. So Pete, you mentioned that you started seeing by 2017 that China uh, showed a lot more interest in Melanesia. Do you have a sense of what prompted this change either before or during 2017? There's a number of things that could have prompted it. But if you're talking about what in the end I saw as the interests China was pursuing, I'd describe them as roughly geopolitical influence, geostrategic access, and to a lesser degree, resources. That is an interesting statement in that during that period of time, we saw the Belt and Road Initiative arrive in all five countries, and it certainly had a branding as an economic initiative, and yet the three interests I've just listed are largely non-economic in their outcomes. So in terms of what China was seeking to pursue, it seems like it was part of a broader effort to pursue influence and access in particular, which at this point in time started to integrate influence and access in the Pacific Islands. So firstly, the Belt and Road specifically arrived in Melanesia from mid-2018. And 
that was interesting because I'd done an extensive period of field work, field research in 2017. And during that, I'd spoken to and interviewed a lot of senior officials in the five case study countries. I also spoke to a lot of people at the grassroots level in villages, I spoke to academics, some politicians. But these officials in 2017 across every country I went to basically felt that they were not of sufficient economic interest to China to become a member of what had just been rebranded as the Belt and Road Initiative. And yet, just over a year later, they all seemed to join it or were invited to join it by China, I guess was the point. They didn't feel like they would be invited. So that's an interesting point in itself. But then I'd just like to describe how it came about. So Papua New Guinea was the first country in the Pacific to join the Belt and Road Initiative. And they joined in June 2018 when Prime Minister Peter O'Neill visited Beijing, had an official state visit with Xi Jinping and signed a memorandum of understanding for the Belt and Road Initiative. He was in the middle of trying to prepare his country to host APEC in Port Moresby later that year. And he was very keen to get support from a number of international donors and particularly China. China took this as a great opportunity and Xi Jinping personally attended the APEC conference, which was unprecedented from a Chinese perspective, noting that Xi Jinping had also visited Fiji in 2014. So now that's two visits by a Chinese president that had not taken place before, which indicates a degree of interest. But once Papua New Guinea had joined the Belt and Road Initiative and then embarked on a, a bunch of developments in a short time frame with Chinese state-owned enterprises trying to provide certain pieces of infrastructure to enhance the hosting of APEC, it then resulted in all of the other countries from the Pacific Islands who recognised Beijing at virtually by the end of the APEC conference in late 2018 had joined the BRI themselves. The, the arrival of the Belt and Road, if you like, is, is a very important event and to some was an unexpected event at the time, which has become integral to the delivery of Chinese grand strategy in the region. I'd also note that political statecraft was really the first element to become obvious as a change and generally that was what happened in 2017, paving the way for the agreements to join the Belt and Road roughly a year later. Let me follow up with respect to what happened in these earlier days with respect to Belt and Road. When China was initially approaching these countries with respect to BRI, were there particular projects or investments that they offered to Papua New Guinea or any of the early countries that sparked significant interest from their end? Because you mentioned that there was originally across the region a sense that they might not be invited to join, but what, what lured Papua New Guinea to be the first to join? It's important to keep in mind the, the character of the Belt and Road, which I, I just note, I describe it as a geoeconomic strategy in that it uses economic means to achieve 
non-economic outcomes from a Chinese perspective, and, and therefore it's it's kind of fundamental to their grand strategy. But in doing so, it's a very important narrative, and that narrative includes the attraction of particularly developing countries, but but all kinds of different countries, to the idea of receiving cheaper infrastructure. And for a developing country, that's obviously integral to their national interest. So it's very effective. But at the same time, it then becomes a narrative for the increase of Chinese statecraft on the ground. And then finally, it's a great framework for the integration and delivery of that statecraft to deliver strategic effects. So after that little sidebar on the the Belt and Road, to answer your question, I think there was a lot of things that Papua New Guinea knew that it desperately needed. This includes pieces of infrastructure like the Highlands Highway, but it also included direct preparation for APEC because here's Papua New Guinea leaning out there saying, we're going to host these important countries. We're going to be seen by the world with all of these leaders from other countries in Port Moresby. And there was that degree of pressure on them to perform and to to have Port Moresby looking right for that level of engagement. So I think that was one of the key drivers behind Papua New Guinea wanting to join the Belt and Road and seeking assistance from China at the time. Since 2018, when these countries joined the BRI, how much have you seen China increase its economic activities in Melanesia? Do you have a sense that of China's growing economic activities there, how much of that is led by Chinese state-owned companies? Sure. My best understandings with Papua New Guinea, and I went back to Port Moresby in particular in mid-2019. So I was there a year after Papua New Guinea joined the Belt and Road Initiative. And the, a number of trends became evident from the data I gained in a fairly quick visit because I was able to compare it with before the Belt and Road. The key change was that between June 2018 and the same time in 2019, the number of state-owned enterprises in Papua New Guinea from China had doubled, which is an amazing change. And I found it surprising. I found it hard to believe at first because my perception in 2017 was there's that many state-owned enterprises, particularly in, in the Papua New Guinean construction sector, I didn't think you could fit any more in. I thought it was saturated. Clearly not because they put in twice as many. But what that then achieved was intense competition and intense competition between Chinese state-owned enterprises, I might add. I was lucky enough to interview people from a number of Chinese SOEs at different stages of my research starting in 2014 up to 2019. And quite a few, particularly from China Harbour Engineering Company, which was, by the way, the key SOE involved in preparing Port Moresby for APEC in 2018, and China Rail International, as well as a few others, had said they were very interested in competing with those other major state-owned enterprises for the Asian Development Bank's money. Now, this is fascinating because the narrative 
as we would all believe it, is that when the Belt and Road Initiative comes to a country, it brings Chinese money in terms of the three different types of Chinese loans. And that is part of the advantage a developing country receives from China. What turned out in this investigation in 2019 was that with this new number of, of Chinese state-owned enterprises, it allowed them to compete so intensely with each other for multilateral bank money that no one else could really compete with them. And in terms of the Asian Development Bank, it was the most significant multilateral in the country at the time. And the figures show that its contribution of aid to Papua New Guinea's GDP increased significantly around this time. And surprisingly, China's contribution of aid decreased significantly. Now, the effect that you get from having Chinese state-owned enterprises providing incredibly important pieces of infrastructure through the ADB is that Papua New Guineans see a Chinese state-owned enterprise building, let's say, the Highlands Highway, which had nine different projects going in 2019, each of which had a Chinese state-owned enterprise working on it, but that is not China's money. Papua New Guineans look at that. They don't know where the money's coming from. They just see it as part of the Belt and Road. And talking to a number of Chinese at the time, they said, oh, yeah, we're quite happy for the Belt and Road to include the spending of other people's money, basically. And in Papua New Guinea, the ADB was, was really the main vehicle for that. And interestingly, I went to the Asian Development Bank and found, talking to the people in charge of their infrastructure projects across Papua New Guinea, that more than 80% of their infrastructure projects had Chinese state-owned enterprises providing them. The interesting thing about that is that China is not a major contributor to the Asian Development Bank, but Japan, the US... Australia, and I believe India, are all very significant contributors to those funds and yet would not see themselves as supporting the Belt and Road Initiative. So that was a a quite interesting development that I found in, in investigating the BRI. That's super fascinating, Pete. So what you're saying is if we just look at Chinese official figures, whether that's in the terms of the money they've spent in Papua New Guinea or other figures, we wouldn't be capturing the fact that, as you mentioned, Chinese companies have been very good at using other people's money, including money funded by, as you mentioned, the United States, Japan, Indian, Australia, and other countries to increase its, its activities in Papua New Guinea, which it seems like what you're saying even though they are funded by ADB, it doesn't prevent them from showing the Chinese flag or being involved in efforts to, to say that they are part of an overall BRI effort. That's right. And I guess the figures in terms of money are quite accurately captured by the Lowy Institute. I think that's probably the best source of data that we have for this period. And you can see that in various countries, you could compare the contribution by China uh, over time and see it decreasing. The most significant example of that is Papua New Guinea, but 
there is a degree of that in each of the case study countries. But at the same time, there's normally some other element that increases its funding. In Vanuatu, it's the World Bank. So another multilateral really stepping up its contribution while the Chinese contribution moderately decreased. It's hard to measure with the Solomon Islands in the period I was looking at because they had only just switched to China. So I don't think the data then is particularly demonstrative. I think if we could get accurate data for now, that would be very interesting. Even in Fiji, the amount of contribution by China decreased somewhat between 2016 and 2019, but there were funds that came from various organisations in the UN that increased. So in each case, there's something that's helping to fund additional work as those countries embark on the Belt and Road and what they see as infrastructure being delivered by China. So when you mentioned Vanuatu and World Bank funds for infrastructure and development of Vanuatu, do you have a sense if PRC companies were able to leverage that money as much as they did for ADB in Solomon Islands? Because you gave a figure about 80% of projects were with a PRC SOE in Papua New Guinea. Yes, Bonnie, I was saying that from my research in Papua New Guinea in 2019, it appeared that 80% or over 80% of the Asian Development Bank's infrastructure projects in Papua New Guinea at that point were with Chinese construction companies, some private but mostly state-owned enterprises. And to answer your question, at the same time, in the same year, China Harbour Engineering Company told me that 90% of their projects in Papua New Guinea were funded by multilateral banks, either the ADB or the World Bank, but mainly the ADB or Asian Development Bank. Then moving on to CCECC, which stands for China Civil Engineering Construction Corporation, which is headquartered in Vanuatu. When I spoke to them in 2019, they said that 75% of their projects were funded by multilaterals, and these were largely the World Bank. And this raises the question, who is actually paying for many of the projects that we, outside of China, see as Belt and Road Initiative projects? These observations are all the more important in this region because Czech and CCECC are pretty much the lead state-owned enterprises for China's economic statecraft and for its key Belt and Road Initiative projects. And most locals tend to believe that the money behind their projects comes from China. But as we know, with these multilaterals, the majority of their funding comes from Western countries that are not participants in the Belt and Road. Maybe if I could follow up, Pete, before we move on to some of additional Chinese statecraft and approach to Melanesia, is as we look at what's happening now, because you mentioned some of these statistics were from 2019, do you have a sense that it's still the same trend? Even though Lowe's numbers has shown less Chinese money spent in the region, is China still able to leverage multinational development banks 
to fill some of that gap to basically mean that even though the official Chinese figures are decreasing, China is still increasing its economic activities in the region. It's hard to tell, and it, particularly during the period of the pandemic, which was a period where clearly I couldn't get out on the ground and I was trying to finish writing my dissertation. It was harder to access this kind of information. And the data that I have, particularly on economic statecraft, tends to focus on the years 2016 to 2019 to just give a comparison of before and after. But if, if you're looking for more recent evidence of use of multilaterals. The best one and most recent one I'm, I'm particularly aware of is in Solomon Islands, where I think it was in March this year, CCECC was awarded an ADB contract for the expansion of the ports in Honiara. And interestingly, that involves not just the international port but a separate domestic port and two other provincial ports out in the other islands. So it's a significant project. Interestingly, no other company tendered for that project, was my understanding from the news at the time. So I guess that would be a continuation of the trend in what could be a very significant facility. I want to switch gears now and talk a bit about the security and potential military implications of what China is doing in all five countries. You mentioned earlier China's investment in not only highways, but also port projects, but also there's, of course, interest in how China is also developing a security relationship with all five countries. Could you share with us what, what you see as the most prominent trends in terms of what China is doing on the security and military front? Sure, Bonnie. My view is that for about two decades, security cooperation with a number of Pacific Islands and China had been fairly low key. But around the turn of the century, China started hosting a lot of members of, of the Defence Forces from Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste and Fiji in particular, but also the Vanuatu Mobile Force occasionally which is a paramilitary force, and also the military forces from Tonga. And they would go to China and do training, which had various levels of effectiveness, according to Pacific Islanders. Some appreciated it, some, some didn't. Some found it as, as better than nothing. But using such different doctrine and philosophy and cultural background, it was often quite different to what those Pacific Islanders were used to. Nevertheless, I think an important contribution from their perspective to training their force at various different times. They also received contributions of materiel from time to time from the PLA, but this seemed rather inconsistent and not that significant. There were many stories of equipment turning up with instructions in Mandarin, which wasn't particularly useful to the force receiving them who spoke English in most cases, but it just gradually ticked along. And interestingly, there was a defense attache in Timor-Leste from the very time that Timor-Leste became independent in 2002. So obviously some strategic priority was given to that small and new country. But at the same time, 
Countries that had much larger defence forces, such as Papua New Guinea and Fiji, did not have Chinese defence attaches in them, even though China had promised they were coming. So in the case of those two countries, they waited about 15 years, saying, I wonder when the the PLA is going to send us a defence attaché, because I guess they were aware that support in terms of materiel and in terms of training would be improved from their perspective if there was a a representative from from China who could follow things up and, and ensure a level of consistency in how it worked. From a Chinese perspective, that was often something that they would say as a demonstrator of just how low a priority the Pacific Islands were to them strategically. Look, we don't even have a defence attaché in Port Moresby. It can't be that important to us. So it was interesting when in late 2020, well into the pandemic, very quietly, a senior colonel appeared in Port Moresby, another in Suva, and another in the next year in Tonga. And then they received lieutenant colonels as deputies. And clearly, an effort was being made to establish a defence attaché's office in each of those embassies. And then on top of that, as they became more confident and more vocal in those countries, a police liaison officer turned up in Fiji in uh, September 2021, which was an interesting change, but I think it made a lot of sense in that Fiji had the strongest police-to-police cooperation with China, and this was really establishing a precedent for future actions which would enable Chinese police to produce a capability similar to the effect of a defence attaché, and thus someone who could coordinate security statecraft in each of the Pacific Islands. And since then, we saw the riots in Honiara in November 2021. That led to the use of that opportunity by China to bring police forward into Solomon Islands. I think this is an indication of where things are going in the Pacific, and there's possibility that that kind of relationship will develop with other Pacific Islands that just have police forces. As you mentioned, it seems like the strengthening of the security and police relationship is relatively recent, particularly with uh, with China sending of personnel to to the islands since late 2020. Just to get a sense of how China's security cooperation or police to police cooperation is relative to how these other islands also interact with countries on its periphery. Do you have a sense that given China's growing activities, that across these five countries, China has stronger ties on the security or police front than, for example, say Australia's relationship with these countries? No, I wouldn't say that. And there's probably two things that I I left out in my description before that are important developments. So one is just to finish off that piece about the establishment of the police presence in Honiara. That then led to the signing of a security framework agreement between Solomon Islands and China in April last year, in 2022, which caused quite a lot of interest from other countries, including Australia and the US, partly because a draft of it was leaked before the signature that made it quite clear that this was going to enable China to access 
the Solomons with military or police force basically when it decided to was how, how the wording came across. Now, we don't know what the final version of of the agreement was and whether it read that way, but I suspect it wasn't particularly different to the draft that was leaked. And that is quite an interesting development in the Pacific. And that is the achievement of, of a quite important objective for China in that they now have geostrategic access to one of the islands virtually guaranteed. Now, the, the other thing I would say on, on the flip side to that is that in Fiji this year, which was the country which had formerly had the closest security relationship at one stage with China and had had the first really strong police-to-police relationship, which started in 2011 and had had a number of interesting developments, including exchanges of police in both directions every year for a significant period. But this year, the new Prime Minister for Fiji, Sitaveni Rambuka, said that that relationship was now over. So that's another interesting development. In terms of Western influence, an important part of the way the Pacific Islands have regarded what is now referred to as regional geopolitical competition is that they have needs they need to meet and they have seen up to now some advantage in being able to get assistance from China but also be able to get assistance from Australia, the United States, New Zealand and other partners and the idea that the two compete against each other has at times been quite useful for a Pacific perspective, most of which are pursuing strategies that we'd describe as hedging. Now, the interesting development of what happened with Manasse Sogavare and the arrival of police and the security framework agreement, some in academia would describe that as he's really switched to a limited alignment with China. But it's been pointed out to me by a senior official recently that we might see it that way, but most likely he sees himself as still hedging. Same, same again, I'd say with Sitaveni Rambuka. Their approach is to maintain the maximum freedom of manoeuvre in terms of their national interests and their choices. So it's very hard to say who has more influence. But what I would say is that in most of the countries that I've been dealing with, there is still a very strong connection, particularly when we talk about defence forces with countries like Australia as traditional partners. So even though we have this understandable outlook of hedging from a small country that's trying to pursue its development interests, there's this strong bond that exists between a force and the one that it's traditionally worked with. And you could say that that gives, despite the changes in contribution by China, a certain edge to other countries like Australia. But once again, that's not one that you can be particularly confident about, and it needs constant review and constant maintenance of that relationship to ensure that it's mutually beneficial, the, the levels of trust are in the right place, and those all contribute to influence in the end. Thank you. Similar to the attention that, that has been attracted by the security framework that you mentioned, 
Solomon Islands and China's side, there was also a lot of attention has been focused on what some worry as China's increasing operations and constructions of dual-use facilities across the region. How do you look at what China is doing with respect to the infrastructure there? Particularly, I think that the most concern have been with respect to China's construction of ports. Yeah, that's a good point. So firstly, to to give my cut on what a dual-use facility is, it's an idea that I guess has been around for a very long time, but in the discourse within China, as they started to look at the need to project power, both within the PLA and and more broadly, as their grand strategy was being adjusted during the last 15 years, there was discussion of dual-use facilities being the best way to achieve the effect that might have been referred to as basing. But it is different. And what we're talking about, this was suggested by Admiral Yin Zhou in 2010, I seem to remember, from the PLA Navy. But to have a, a dual-use facility, I would largely describe it as a commercial facility that has been constructed by a Chinese company, normally a state-owned enterprise, but it doesn't have to be, that's constructed to meet certain needs and most importantly, to meet the host nation's needs. And that's what makes it a viable proposition. But at the same time, if they construct it in a way that allows in the future the support of Chinese ships or Chinese aircraft, and you know, so we're generally referring to something like a Type 71 amphibious ship, be able to dock, replenish, move stores on and off, troops on and off, and be able to then project force further. While in the case of an airfield, one of their very large Xi'an Y-20 strategic airlift aircraft to do the same, preferably to have an airfield and a port near each other to give maximum strategic flexibility. So we're looking at something that's got these capabilities. Now, is that something you can identify or detect as a potential future base? No, it's not. Is it something that's of use to the host nation and potentially something that's quite vital to their developing economy? Yes, it is. And they're they're probably the the two most important things in terms of being able to define whether a uh, facility is of dual-use nature. The the thing is, you'll never know until it later on gets used for military purposes. And I'll just add to that what kind of military purposes we're talking about. Generally not a warfighting purpose. From my perspective, I'd see it as as what we tend to describe as low-intensity operations, such as humanitarian assistance, non-combatant evacuation operations, and possibly some kind of stabilization operations. But the idea behind this is that it's enabling the expansion of China's power through the demonstration of the projection of military force to provide assistance or to protect Chinese interests in the current phase of competition. In terms of conflict, it may be the precursor to the creation of something that's more like a base, what we would call a base, a more overt facility in the future, and that may be of some utility in a conflict. But the point remains with all of these facilities, they are quite targetable 
and most likely of less utility in conventional conflict. But the main focus, I think, is on the competition that currently exists and enabling China's geopolitical influence to be further propagated through the use of military force in that kind of role. In the potential dual-use facilities that I've tracked during my research, they are spread right across the five case study countries. There's uh, between two and five examples that I'm aware of in each of them. They vary from being ports to airports to a combination of the two and at times proposed host nation military facilities. But they've had very success. Generally, the ones that have gone ahead have had an important economic reason from the host nation's perspective, which obviously makes them viable. Yes. And P, maybe I could follow up. So really appreciate your definition of uh, dual use facilities. As we look at these five countries, where do you see China's work on a commercial facility could be used to support low intensity operations? Are we looking at just a couple of facilities or do you see more potential across the five countries? I've identified about 14 potentials across the five countries and my list is not exhaustive. As I said, it's impossible to define which is and which isn't, but there's there's certainly a number where Chinese state-owned enterprises have won a contract and developed a facility. As I said before, it's generally quite important to the host nation and that's what enables it all to happen. And really, there's not much you can do about it because of that. But at the same time, there's been a number of examples in the past that have not progressed for one reason or another. In some cases, they may not have been particularly important to the host nation. So I think there might have been some learning involved there from a Chinese perspective. And there's other examples where there might have been other reasons that have prevented their continuation. So Pete, I think in the interest of time, because we've already covered a lot of ground, but of course we didn't cover everything to discuss given the extensive work you've done. I do want to wrap up the podcast by looking a bit at how you see dynamics playing out moving forward. So as we discussed, you mentioned that despite what China's official figures show, China's economic engagement with Melanesia has not been decreasing. In fact, it's increasingly possible that Chinese companies are, because they've established such a local presence, are very good at getting funding from non-Chinese sources to increase their activities there. You've also mentioned that on the security front, in the past two or three years, China has been expanding its security cooperation, but also police-to-police cooperation. So as you look forward, what do you think should be the role that the United States, Australia, and our allies and partners play given China's growing engagement? You mentioned that many countries view themselves as hedging between the West and China, but are you concerned moving forward? And what do you think we should do collectively as close allies and partners to think about and respond to China's growing influence in the region? Sure. I think the the fundamental issue from 
the position of traditional partners with the Pacific Islands is they're competing with Chinese influence and it's important that they continue to provide the assistance that they have in the past to those countries. I think the fundamental issue is to give focus to exactly what the interests of those Pacific Islands are and to be very open to working closely with them. That enables a number of the advantages that Western countries do have through their their long-standing relationships to be given more strength and to be given courage, relevance. But the fundamental issue behind all of that is to always reinforce the trusting relationships based on mutual interests rather than be seen to be pushing interest from outside the region onto regional countries. In early July 2023, Solomon Islands Prime Minister Sogovare travelled to Beijing and the two countries signed nine new deals, including a police cooperation pact. How significant is this deal in terms of expanding PRC influence? How will this impact existing security relations with Australia and the Solomon Islands? The Solomon Islands is probably the best example of these trends in China's statecraft in the Pacific at the moment. And this is demonstrated by Prime Minister Manasse Sogabari's visit to Beijing this month. The visit apparently resulted in nine new agreements between China and Solomon Islands in what they've described as a comprehensive strategic partnership, which has led to nine more detailed agreements on topics such as policing, aviation, trade, technical exchanges, and training for sports. As part of this, you can see China's economic statecraft continues to be attractive to the developing economy of the Solomon Islands, but at the same time, in the security sphere, there's a development of the relationship between the Chinese police and the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. And this comes in the form of an implementation plan, which delivers greater detail on the agreements that were struck in early 2022. Without seeing these agreements, it's hard to comment further. But one thing that is clear is that the developing security relationship is a cause for concern for some, both in the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force within the Solomon Islands population and within the greater region. Thank you, Pete. I'd like to end this podcast by looking forward. How do you see trends in Chinese activity in the Pacific Islands developing or shaping up in the future? What we've discussed here today is the enhancement of the capability of China's statecraft, particularly in Melanesia in the last five years. What we can expect to see from here is the continued enhancement of China's statecraft capabilities more broadly across the Pacific. And this will be accompanied by the increasingly sophisticated conduct of this statecraft, including the integration of different means and the cohesive, agile and adaptive employment of them to achieve China's grand strategic objectives on the ground. 
Pete, thank you again for everything. And I very much appreciate you joining our podcast. Mm-hmm.